Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, welcome to Race and Democracy, uh, a podcast on the intersection of race, democracy, policy, higher education, history, and really contemporary events. Uh, my name is Peniel Joseph, and I am the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy and the Barbara Jordan Professor in Political Values and Ethics at the University of Texas at Austin. And this is our first episode for the fall semester, and we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Keferlin Brown, who is University Distinguished Professor of Cultural Studies and Education at the University of Texas at Austin, and really one of the most, the, the foremost um, pedagogical experts uh, when we think about education, uh, African-American history, um, issues of not just diversity, but issues of equity um, in, in the country. Um, so, Dr. Brown, Keferlin, so happy to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to talk to you today about a number of different things, but on campus, we've had um, conversations, both public conversations and private conversations, about 1619. And, you know, the New York Times, other outlets have done all these special um, sort of pedagogical um, efforts. You know, New York Times, Sunday Magazine, Voices of America Radio had a program that I was part of on 1619 to 2019, sort of 400 years of um, the story of not just um, slavery, but basically freedom in America. But 1619 is the date when uh, either 19 or 20 and odd um, enslaved Africans arrive in Jamestown, Virginia, and sort of begin uh, the origin story uh, in what becomes the United States of America. And you're doing a project on 1619 right now, and how do we teach um, the story of uh, racial slavery uh, in the K through 12 curriculum? So I want to talk to you about that both specifically, but also generally in terms of how do we teach slavery? How do we teach the story of civil rights? How do we teach racial identity, privilege, the politics of exclusion? All these things that have become really foremost in all of our minds uh, in, in this sort of post-Barack Obama uh, moment that we find ourselves in. Right. So I, I am, uh, I just launched um, a, a research project, a series of teacher workshops, and a, a website with uh, my co-leads, uh, Anthony Brown and Dinah Ramey Berry. And we are focused on teaching Texas slavery in particular because that is an area in the state of Texas that is lacking in our curriculum. What we are talking about, however, with Texas slavery uh, can also apply and does apply to larger U.S. slavery. We're also focusing those, that, 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 that study around race. So we're, we're sort of arguing that you cannot talk about Texas slavery or U.S. slavery without talking about race. And actually, we need to talk more about race in school curriculum anyway. So this is a wonderful space to do that. And why do we need to talk more about race, Kefalyn? When we think about schools and we think about education systems, in general, it's it's pretty well documented that there are 
are glaring um, inequities um, that are linked to race. Um, and those play out not only in the curriculum, but they play out in the classroom. Uh, I work in the area of teaching and curriculum, and, and, and I also focus on teacher education. And one of the things that we try to focus on when our students are coming into our program is helping them understand race, racism, and how uh, that particular social construct plays a role and will play a role in their classroom. It'll play a role in the kinds of knowledge that's made available for their students, but also how teachers look at, perceive, and make decisions about students and how students engage with their teachers and with with others. Even if those teachers aren't racist or actively racist. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, uh, one of the things that we actually push our students to understand is that you you may not be uh, individually racist. In other words, you may not engage in behaviors that are overtly racist or uh, prejudicial. However, uh, we live in a society and our and our and our institutions are are laden with certain kinds of uh, racist practices, and without understanding how we all are immersed within that system, you can easily reinforce or reinscribe um, beliefs and practices that you may not overtly want to engage in. Uh, we really push against the idea of having a color evasive or what some call color blind. Uh, set of practices where we choose not to see race, uh, even as we recognize that race is operating within that space. And when we think about Texas history, Texas history has come under fire from critics for um, embellishing when, when, when we think about the history of race in America, but also not just race, but, but racial slavery and sort of anti-Black racism, not even um, using the correct terminology uh, for for the antebellum period in the United States, uh, why is it so important to teach um, slavery in Texas and sort of rewrite the Texas history books? Um, what can be accomplished by doing that, and what process are you undergoing right now? At one level, the issue is related to just what is the narrative that's being told, and that narrative historically has been either grossly uh, exaggerated or just misrepresented or ignored or rendered invisible. Uh, Slavery played an integral role in our society, in the founding of this country, and in its maintenance, um, economically, socially, politically. And so to not address it is to not understand the full uh, narrative of 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 the U.S. and and to understand that narrative in Texas as well. Um, it also offers an opportunity for students to better understand how race has just been a part of uh, our country and continues to be a part of our country. And without teaching about it, we lose the opportunity to not only broaden the 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 historic narrative, but we lose the opportunity to help our students to develop what we might call a stronger racial literacy. And when you say racial literacy, I'd love for you to explain that and why is it important for really all students, irrespective of color, to have that racial literacy. A racial literacy just simply allows you to be able to read and make sense of race beyond uh, just what we might think of as interpersonal uh, prejudice or 
racism that might take place overtly between two individuals. It helps you to better understand how uh, racism operates and can operate even with well-meaning people who are who are not engaging in those kinds of behaviors. Uh, that's the nature of institutional and structural racism. It's not dependent on what any one individual person does. And in fact, your one individual act doesn't necessarily change that larger system. I, I would argue that uh, that's probably one of the most difficult and challenging um, concepts for students to wrap their head around. Uh, and by the time they get to university, when they get into my courses, uh, and I teach probably the only course that our uh, uh, future teachers have to take around issues of culture and race, when they come into that course, they often don't understand institutional or structural racism. And we can't spend the whole you know, semester talking about uh, that concept because there's so many other things we need to talk about. Um, but it's probably one of the more difficult concepts for students to wrap their head around, and especially getting away from a colorblind ideology. Because for many of them, they've been taught that to see race or to acknowledge race in a direct way um, potentially places you in a category of being racist. And what we want them to recognize is it's not the seeing race or acknowledging race that cause, causes one to be racist. Uh, it, it's when you don't see it and when you don't allow others to uh, ask questions about what might be going on in this space that's racially, um, that's racialized or that's that's connected to race so that we can um, better provide more equitable opportunities for all students to learn, whether that's in the curriculum, whether it has to do with the decisions that teachers are making, whether it has to do with how teachers view students or the perceptions that they uh, have of students, whatever it may be. Um, seeing race, seeing race for the way that it can operate within a space can empower us and not necessarily debilitate us. That's great. I want us to move towards a wider lens now and talk about 1619 to 2019 in popular culture and political culture and why right now um, this idea of being anti-racist and, you know, we have the historian Ibram Kendi who has the bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist. You've got Amani Perry with the book Breathe. You've got all these different um, black scholars and public intellectuals writing about these issues. But why is slavery and sort of the teaching and the speaking of slavery, why do you think it's become so relevant? Is it is it because of the, again, the post-Barack Obama turn, um, obviously the White House and sort of the racial dysfunctionality that's, that's happening there? But what's so interesting is that we have all these big mainstream audiences that I think for the first time, I would argue probably since Roots in 1977, um, are willing to talk about racial slavery. But interestingly, and this is distinct from 1977, they're talking about racial slavery in a very granular way, meaning that how does how did slavery impact healthcare? How did slavery impact um, sugar and rice cultivation? Um, how does slavery impact the system of mass incarceration? How does slavery impact public schools and the health and wellness of black people, but also white people and Latinx people? Um, so I think it's fascinating to watch. And I think, you know, obviously you're on the cutting edge along with Professor Brown and, 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 and Barry of, of doing this in Texas. But why do you think, what are some of the forces that are making us finally 
talk about this? I think our larger social political context is is probably playing an important role. I think we've had at least, uh, you know, over the last uh, several years, uh, a proliferation um, in the media, a media presence around racial violence targeted uh, against uh, peoples of African descent here in this country. That's not it's not as if that this is the only time that has happened, but there has been more of a spotlight on it. Um, Black Lives Matter, I think the, the, that movement and just the, the, the attention that it garnered um, has helped to play uh, a role in, 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 in bringing these ideas um, to, to our popular, uh, to popular culture. And I'm sure social media as well. Um, so I think seeing um, and trying to make sense of these acts that are clearly, they're racially motivated. Um, and you see, you know, over and over, time and time again, um, racial violence uh, being inflicted on um, black people. The question comes up, you know, why is this the case? And and given that this country was founded on uh, a very violent and dehumanizing uh, system of, of racial slavery um, uh, between um, black people and whites, it makes sense to, to, to say, let's go back and let's try to better understand what was going on within that institution that uh, helps us to better understand uh, perhaps some of the challenges we're dealing with now um, with racial violence between um, law enforcement in the state, mass incarceration, um, inequities in education and schooling, uh, as well as in health care, what's happening in housing. I mean, you see this in all of the various institutions within our society, these sort of racial inequalities. Uh, And I think people say, let's let's try to go back at least to a very beginning and starting point uh, within our country where we where we where we had um, this sort of racial divide. Now, public education is so important, and public education in this country was really, um, in a way, founded by black elected officials during Reconstruction. They definitely supported it, um, the first sort of institutionalization of it. Of late, we've heard a lot about, in the Democratic debates, about busing um, between um, uh, Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, I want us to discuss education and slavery and capitalism, really. Because what's so interesting to me, the deeper I learn as a, as a lifelong student about racial slavery and its afterlife, its evolution, I see so much of it in the public education system in the sense that uh, we set up segregated Jim Crow public schools. But even after the formal end of Jim Crow, um, racial integration as a policy was really not achieved. The high point is 1988, um, at least according to um, you know UCLA scholars. Um, and and what do we what are we to make of the way in which education is utilized as a tool um, to perpetuate uh, racial segregation? Um, even when we think about education vis-a-vis whether it's uh, charter schools or private schools or public schools, but just the fact that uh, African-Americans historically um, attend schools that are less well-funded, schools that 
are in impoverished neighborhoods, um, highly segregated schools, and they have outcomes that are worse than their 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 white counterparts. Um, and and Rucker Johnson has the new book, you know, Children of the Dream, and and says, you know, why school integration works when it's given an opportunity, but most often it's not given an opportunity. So, what is the connection when we think about um, um, public school education, uh, racial slavery, um, capitalism, and really the new segregation that that uh, Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow that we all find ourselves ensconced in now? They're more racially segregated now than they were in the 1970s, which I think has been well documented. Uh, much of that has had to do with the way that um, neighborhoods have operated. But in general, um, children of color, children who are from lower income backgrounds tend to go to schools with other children that fit that same uh, those same criteria. Mm-hmm. When we think about what's happening now in the educational landscape, we have neoliberal sort of reforms that have sort of taken over in some ways in schools based on those very... Um, Inequities, often that's what how they they sort of position themselves as addressing those inequities that you raise. Uh, so we see the, the we've seen the growth of charter schools and the growth of uh, standardized testing, which all are linked to capitalist sort of ventures. Right. Mm-hmm. We see the growth of now testing centers and and people who are uh, companies that are uh, creating more and more tests as a way to give us more information and data about how well students, how well schools are or are not doing. But they serve to stigmatize. And that's what ends up, that's what ends up happening. But the argument is that um, we're actually creating methods where we can hold schools accountable for what they're doing in schools. Our traditional public schools have been demonized to the point where there seems to be a belief in some ways that the only, uh, educational institutions that can truly serve the needs of students of color and students from lower income backgrounds would be charter schools, often for profit, that will have less overhead, less bureaucracy, and they can get in and just make, teachers are ununionized, as a way to go in and just, we can get the job done. No excuses in some ways. And all of this centers around the belief or the recognition, rather, that those students are not doing well in school. And while it is clear that we have had challenges in our K-12 schooling, these reforms have not changed those inequities. Uh, We still see them in schools. The idea of capital is still very much a part of schools. Every one of those children that are in those schools bring a certain kind of value to larger for-profit institutions that are making money on the backs of children who are positioned as just needing a good education. And for most parents, they just want their children to go to a good school. They want their children to go to a good school. And when they hear that some other institution could do a better job, well, they're going to try to get whatever is the best or what they perceive to be the best, even when what is perceived to be the best is not necessarily making a real difference. And I I think the reason I was connecting slavery to the public school system now is the way in which we think about mass incarceration and all the investments that states and the federal government have made in this process of mass incarceration, especially since 1980 and the proliferation of 2.3 million people in prison. Most of them are in state jails, um, county institutions, a couple hundred thousand in federal. 
Um, but we've done that investment. And at the same time, we've had disinvestment in public schools, especially some of the public schools in the highest need areas. Right. Especially from a, you know, from a, a sort of divestment of uh, uh, public monies and public funding uh, and trying to put it more out to um, the private sector. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So what what is to be done? You know, Catherine, when we think about um, both in terms of teaching about slavery teaching about race, teaching about civil rights at the K through 12 level, and also teaching teachers how to teach this, which is absolutely fundamentally necessary. What are things that can be done to transform um, public school education, especially for not just um, kids of color generally, yes, but for black children? So my work uh, and the, the, lens, the lens that I generally take focuses on curriculum and teaching. Um, there's so many other aspects to schooling, formal schooling, um, that I don't necessarily uh, focus on in my own work. But what I would say is that uh, teachers are right on the front lines. Teachers are in classrooms. They have direct influence and can make a difference. I mean, you know, there have been uh, many studies that have argued probably the most important variable in the K-12 schooling experience is the teacher. Right. That, that if you have a, a, a well-qualified teacher uh, who is able to connect with those students, uh, who knows what they're doing in the classroom, they can make a difference um, uh, with outcomes. And so I would say that one of the most important things that we can do is to make sure that we are putting good teachers in the classroom, that we are uh, properly uh, training them and giving them the kinds of content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge that they need. I would why, also Why the lack of African-American male teachers? And do you think that that has a real impact on outcomes for um, young black males? So, so there have been uh, studies that have looked at sort of what they call racial matching. Um, and, and some of those studies have shown that students who are in classrooms with teachers that come from the same uh, racial uh, background as themselves often perform at a higher level. Um, I, w- I, I have not done those particular studies, but what I what I think is is likely going on in those in those spaces is that when you have a person who comes from the same background that you may come from, there are there aren't certain assumptions that are made about you whether you're capable or not. Uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that every teacher that goes into a classroom who is African-American will have high expectations for their African-American students. Um, But what it does mean is that uh, there is often uh, an ability to see that child as uh, fully capable uh, because you know people like that. You are that child. In terms of Black males. It's a complicated, um, complicated topic. I think we're seeing many more um, initiatives coming down the pike around bringing in more black male teachers. And and, I, and I'll say, I mean, I, I think that the numbers of black male teachers within the classroom are about two percent, a little bit less than maybe two percent. We need more black male teachers because we just need more black male teachers. We need more black male teachers for all of our students, uh, not only for uh, black males to see and have uh, uh, opportunities to work with black males, 
um, but also because there is a knowledge base and a and a and, and, and an experiential base uh, that they bring to the table, and they should be represented in schools that all students need to have access to. Uh, and so I I would I would I would argue, and I have written about uh, the need to have more teachers of color brought into our uh, K twelve schools. Uh, but there are many uh, challenges in terms of of getting them there, um, and 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 that and that those go back to the need to properly uh, uh, train them to pay well, I mean, pay more, that probably would be one of the ways to get more um, uh, teachers of color into the classroom is to, is to, is to pay teachers more money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all of those are important um, considerations. Well, my, my final question, um, when you think about this Texas history initiative that you're taking on in terms of teaching slavery from K to 12, what do you hope to accomplish? And what would be the outcomes, your dream outcomes, if we if we come back and talk two years from now um, about how this project is going? One of the things that we hope to see is that teachers will actually begin to teach about Texas slavery or U.S. slavery and race in a more robust way. First of all, that they'll actually talk about race in the context of teaching Um teaching uh, this topic. We, we had our first teacher workshop this week with uh, uh, a set of uh, educators. And I was told that, that someone made the comment that they had been teaching for over 20 years and they had never gotten any professional development on teaching slavery or teaching race. And that it was just... Um, an amazing experience for them to have that. And based on all the feedback that we got, teachers were like, we, this, we want to know more about these race constructs and the way that we were able to sort of um, identify them and how they play out in, in actual historic documents uh, is powerful. And we've not seen that before. So I think that is at a, at a basic level would be important. Um, also, just knowing that teachers feel more comfortable and more efficacious in their ability to do this work without having someone give them, you know, a set of lesson plans that tell them that this is exactly how you go about teaching this. But rather, they know how and feel comfortable pulling together those resources and presenting it to their students in ways that are contextualized and that are humanizing, that are not dehumanizing to, to the students in their classrooms, and in particular, their students of color, their African-American students, who've been, in, in many ways, uh, get stigmatized when this topic comes up in the curriculum. And it's probably one of the only times, outside of maybe discussions of civil rights, if you make it that far in your, in your 11th grade history course, uh, one of the few times that you'll actually see black people enter into the curriculum. And so we would I would like to see teachers feel more comfortable in their ability to teach in uh, critical race based and humanizing ways. Um, that would make me um, feel like we had made a difference. All right. That'll be the final word. I love that you said humanizing and, and trying to use this pedagogy to humanize um, that history and to humanize each other and to humanize this country uh, for the for the good of a, of us all and especially the children and our future generation. Dr. Keflin Brown, 
uh, who is Distinguished University Professor of Cultural Studies and Education at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been our first episode of the fall 2019 season of Race and Democracy, um, our podcast on the intersection of race, uh, democracy, uh, policy, history, and really social justice. Um, thank you for joining us and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and you can find out more about us at csrd.lbj.edu. I'm Peniel Joseph and thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.